talking about families and past and history can be fun. And, and this time of year, of course, Easter is a lot about history. But there's another thing that's important for some people is this is the beginning of the national pastime, right? You know, if you're like, Joe, you're a Yankees fan. I mean, if you're a big baseball fan, they say, they say that there's not as many baseball fans as there used to be. But there's, you know, I still enjoy the sport, and there's a lot of history behind it. In fact, if you start talking to parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents, you'll see that they have a lot of memories that go back to the past and to their history. Uh, my great-grandfather, Charlie Rolfing, went to the 1932 World Series between the Chicago Cubs and the New York Yankees. And, of course, the Yankees won that series, uh, as they usually did. But he was... He was there, and it was a little bit different. You know, historically, in those days, they didn't have jumbotrons and things to tell you what was going on or music playing. So if you wanted to follow the game, you had a little, what they called a scorecard, and you would write in the scorecard, you know, what was going on. You'd keep track of it, and you'd, you know, take it with you and usually discard it. But he held on to that one. In fact, it's still in the family. And you know why he held on to it? It was a historic game. What happened that game? Anybody know? 1932 World Series? Any history boss here? Doggone it, you just ruined my... Why don't you come on up? <laughs> okay, Joe is a big Yankees fan. Um, and that's true. Babe Ruth called his home run. Babe Ruth was past his prime. He still hit 32 home runs that year, but he came up to bat and they were heckling him and making fun of him and things. And so he made a motion. Now they've caught it on video, but it's, it's blurry, you know, so they don't really know, but it looked like he made some kind of motion. Now in his movie, you know, after he died and they made a movie about his life, he actually went out and he took the baseball bat and he goes, I'm going to hit the ball right there after he had two strikes on him. And he said, I'm going to put it right there. And that's what he did. But we haven't been able to prove if that's exactly what he did. Could you imagine somebody doing, I mean, think about it, hitting a round object with a round object and actually calling your shot saying, I'm, it's going to be right there. Two strikes on me, I'm going to hit it out right now. They don't know for sure that he did it. The guy who had the best shot on it was uh, Lou Gehrig, the old iron horse who was standing behind him because he was next up to bat. And they asked him about it, and and Gehrig just shook his head, and he said, he's one lucky monkey. (laughs) It would take a lucky monkey to be able to do something like that. I've tried it. I remember when I was a kid, and I'd get two strikes on me, and I'd say, I'm going to hit it right there. I got two strikes on me a lot more frequently than I hit it out. Um, and usually if I did hit it out, it was a makeshift game where there were just two of us playing at a wiffle ball or something. Um, but amazing that he could do that. He called his own shot. Have you ever tried to call your own shot? I've known ladies who say, I'm going to have my baby on this day. By the way, uh, Cana was born the same day as Judah. The two, the two daughters born on the same day. Isn't that amazing? But I don't think Brittany called the date. But sometimes some of you moms have said, I, I'm going to have my baby on this date. And you were right. And, and sometimes people say, I'm going to marry this man. Just you watch and see. I'm going to marry this man. And you're right. And sometimes you regret that prophecy. <laughs> right? And, so, and the same thing happened with the job. That's the job I'm going to get. And then you get it. And who knows? But, but the deal is, is what if every time you made a prediction, it was true? What would you have to conclude? You're superhuman, that maybe you're divine, maybe you're God. Now, we've been doing a series. In fact, we started in Christmas. We did two different series. We did a Christmas series, and we took a break in between. But we did a Christmas series on Christmas prophecies. And now this will be the conclusion of our Easter prophecies. And we're talking about the prophecies made about Jesus. And what we have concluded is that 
they were always correct. They were always correct. Each one has a little bit of a twist to it. The twist to this one is Jesus is going to prophesy about himself. He's going to tell it about himself. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the ancient prophecies, they're almost always in poetry and they're sort of shrouded. They, you, don't, you don't want to know everything. If you know it, then it wouldn't be that big a deal. People could figure it out. If you want it to last a couple hundred years, you can't tell, it every, tell us everything. So this is how you figure out a prophecy. You can, this is the principle. You never understand a prophecy until it has been fulfilled. So you look at it and say, I I don't know, it could be this, it could be that, I don't get it. And then when it happens, you say, oh, I get it. Now it all comes together. That's how prophecies work. But if you have a short prophecy, one that's just taking months or weeks before it takes place, it doesn't have to be that clever. You can tell somebody something because if it's going to be a major prophecy, it's going to be so outrageous that people won't understand or won't get it anyway. So Jesus is fairly direct in his prophecy, and he calls his own shot. And he tells us that he's going to die and be resurrected. He says it several times in his life. Three times specifically. And the third time, most specifically, and he says it um, right, right before he dies, basically, like a week or so before he dies. And it's recorded in Luke chapter 18. So in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, we'll take a look at it today. It says, Jesus took the 12 aside, and the 12 is in reference to his 12 closest followers or disciples, And he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man, that means written about him, that was one of the titles that he would have, will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. So what did Jesus prophesy about his death? Well, the first thing is he said it it would happen in Jerusalem. It's going to take place in Jerusalem. And we saw that last week. We looked at the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, now try to wrap your mind around this. The prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 took place 500 years. 500 years before it happened. So 500 years before it happened, he said it was going to happen. He was going to come into Jerusalem and have a triumphal entry. So... That happened. Pretty amazing. But if you put your critical hat on, you'd say, well, where else was a Jewish person supposed to come? If he's supposed to be the Messiah, the Christ who's going to save Israel and the world, where else would he appear but Jerusalem? It's not like he's going to go to Albuquerque, New Mexico, right? It'd have to be someplace that would be pretty obvious. I mean, that is the obvious place. They say, okay, all right, I get that. But then it starts getting more intriguing as he goes on. He says next that it would fulfill all the earlier prophecies. So all the prophecies that have been made about Jesus up till now are going to come true. Now, these prophecies, again, are made about the the Jewish Messiah who became known in Greek as the Christ, and he was the Son of Man, the Son of God. He's supposed to come, and he says, everything that's been said is going to kind of reach its culmination, is all going to come together on this occasion when I die in Jerusalem. So what were some of the prophecies? There were many of them, but look at some of them that tie in. We've talked about the triumphal entry. We saw that in Zechariah 9, 9, fulfilled in Matthew 21 and elsewhere. It would necessitate that he was betrayed, and we learn about a betrayal by a close friend. That's talked about by, in Psalm 41, verse 9. Luke 22 and other passages talk about that. Um, interesting, because that's a psalm. And psalms are songs 
We've lost the melody, but we retain the words. They're like poetry. And the Psalms were written earlier. So this prophecy was made about a thousand years, a thousand years before it happened. It said that somehow the Messiah's close friend would betray him. It says also that he would be mocked in, in Psalm 22, verse 7. Again, a thousand years. And we see the result in Luke 23. That he'd be spat on in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. That's about 700 years. The fulfillment is in Matthew 26 and elsewhere. And here's an interesting one. That he'd be pierced, his side would be pierced. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, fulfilled in John chapter 19, verse 31, 4. Um, Psalm 22 is really, really interesting because in Psalm 22, it essentially describes somebody dying by crucifixion. Why it's so interesting is crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. And this is a thousand years before Jesus would be crucified. And what's difficult to figure out is he's talking like it's a crucifixion. If he dies by crucifixion, it almost sounds like the Messiah is supposed to die by a spear in him. He's going to get his side pierced and die. Or maybe it's figurative. What, in, what does that mean? What does that have to do with his death? And this is where it all comes together. And it shows you how the intricate details of these prophecies are all tied together. When Jesus died on the cross, he's up on the cross. It's one of the most horrible forms of execution, maybe the worst in history. And so a person... Would, would fall down. And when they, they fall down on the cross, it would cut off their breathing. So they couldn't breathe and they would asphyxiate. That's how you die. You suffocate. So to keep from, from dying that way, you would pull yourself back up, but your hands and your feet all have nails in them. So can you imagine the excruciating pain of pulling yourself back up? So you can't win either way. You're, you're in pain pulling yourself up or you're going to suffocate. And you're fighting for each. How long could a person live like that? Unfortunately, in some cases, for, for a few days. And so the pain was horrible. Now, when Jesus died, it was, sunset was coming, and that meant the next day would be the Jewish Sabbath, and you were not allowed to have people on crosses on the Sabbath. So they had to take the bodies down. So they went by, and they figured these guys aren't dead yet. So there was a way to quicken, to hasten their death. You would break their legs. And then they couldn't pull themselves up anymore. And then they die pretty quickly. But another prophecy in Psalm 22 tells us that none of his bones, none of the Messiah's bones would be broken. And so when they came to Jesus to break his bone, they said, bones, they said, he looks like he's already dead. Because in fact, he had already given himself up to God supernaturally. And so they said, how do we know for sure he's dead? Because, you know, he could just be kind of, you know, semi-consciousness or something. So they took a spear and they pierced his side to see if he was dead. And they pierced him in such a place that water and blood came out, demonstrating that his heart had failed and he was dead. And so it fulfills the prophecy. Incredible. Something that intricate that God would have in there as a prophecy. And then he was resurrected. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, and Psalm 49, verse 15, we see the prophecy, we're talking about it today, being fulfilled. These prophecies are amazing. You can go back as far as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is probably the first prophecy. It says that after Adam and Eve fell, it says that one is going to come who will crush the head of the serpent. That's Satan, the devil, had portrayed himself as a serpent. He will crush Satan's head, and Satan will bruise his heel. And it's understood that Jesus' crucifixion was the bruising of his heel, but his resurrection crushed Satan once and for all. 
that prophecy was made thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago at the very beginning of recorded time. How many prophecies, you want to take a stab at it, how many prophecies do you think there were made about Jesus' life? Anybody? Yes. A thousand. Oh, boy, this is a, oh, that's a lot. No, you know, last time they started low. You know, we started, we had to do a little bit of auction stuff, you know. So they started with 100, and then we want 150. So a thousand is pretty high. That's high. Actually, it was high, but not that high. Good guess. Actually, a little lower, though, in the hundreds. Anybody want to guess? Anybody else? 200. Okay, now we're getting close. There we go, Hunter. Very close. We're getting, it's actually... It's recorded. Now, there's some dispute. Of course, people may, you know, there's a little bit of difference, but it's pretty close. Almost everybody agrees it's right around 300 or over 300. Isn't that amazing? 300 prophecies? How many of them came true? So far, 100%. 100%. Makes Nostradamus look like the amateur, Right? all these great prophets that we read about in the Enquirer and stuff. Um, it, it's unbelievable that somebody could actually do that. So we see that part, which, which really is astounding. And then he goes on, and we look more at what happened to him. The Gentiles would torture and kill him. The Jewish name for those who were non-Jews were Gentiles. In this case, they would be Romans, and they would torture him, and they would kill him on the cross, as we were just talking about, and he would die. Now, Let's put our critical hats on again. Let's just, say, let's just say that Jesus wanted to be Messiah really bad, but he, he wasn't. He was just a regular guy. But he loved reading about this stuff as a kid, and he loved reading these prophecies. And so he decided that what he would do is he would, his whole life would be trying to fulfill these prophecies. So he would practice them and make sure he did everything on the list. Now, that would be pretty absurd. It would be very difficult to do. But, I mean, just for the sake of argument, we're saying he's trying to do that. Here's the, the most difficult thing to understand is why in the world would he be willing to go through a crucifixion? Why would he do that? To go through that much pain just to prove he was Messiah? Doesn't make any sense. And this makes sense less. The next thing makes even less sense. He would rise on the third day. Is that crazy or what? He'd come back to life? Because it's not possible. It's not scientifically possible to come back to life when you've been dead. We all know that. So why are we even here? You know, science is, is probably the, the number one subject in academia today. And I'm one who respects it a great deal. But sometimes I think history... History can trump science in some cases. Because, see, science studies history. It, sci- it studies the history of people. It studies the history of, of the world. And it, and it helps us determine what works and what doesn't work and why it works and why it doesn't work. But what happens when something works out of the normal? What if something is abnormal? What if something is different? And it can't be ins- explained scientifically, and yet it's historically verifiable. It's historically verifiable. What are we left with? A miracle. If what Jesus did wasn't a miracle, if it was historically 
if it wasn't, if it was scientifically explainable, if this was scientifically plausible, what he did, rising from the dead, you wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be having church services and we wouldn't be celebrating Easter because it would be no big deal. That's why people come out on Easter Sunday because something happened that was unnatural, abnormal, supernatural happened that day. And it is historically verifiable. I mean, there's so much evidence to point out that Jesus really rose from the grave. For example, you can look at science from another angle, look at archaeology. Archaeologists have tried to determine where his tomb was. I heard an archaeologist talk last year, and she was pointing out, and I've heard this before too, that there's really only about two or three places where it could be. They've pretty much narrowed it down. They know it's one of two or three places. One of them, she says, she believes is it, and it usually gets the number one vote, is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's a church actually built around a garden tomb in Jerusalem, and most people think it's there. We don't know for sure. But one thing is for certain, all those tombs are empty. All those tombs are empty. Do you know that there's been more written about Jesus than any man in human history? We've absolutely picked his life apart. And yet, as we've picked his life apart and we've looked at all the different things, he just keeps standing up and, and he, he fits everything that we've said. Now, here's the thing, is who's written about him? In Jewish culture and in the ancient world, they say you want at least two people so that they're not just, you know, because otherwise people join up and they, they both, both are like, they both say the same thing because they're both in on it. So you want at least two to three people. Two to three people is better. Well, there are four people that testify about Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible. And they're reputable people. I mean, Matthew was a bad guy. He was a tax collector. He did 180, became a follower of Jesus, wrote about Jesus, and then ended up dying, was, was martyred as a missionary. And Mark was a boy. Some of you kids, he was actually a kid. Well, he's probably around early teenage years, and we believe that his parents' home was the place where Jesus had his last supper. So he followed Jesus as a boy, and he became a personal assistant to Peter, the great... Um, preacher who rocked the Roman world and was himself uh, crucified upside down for his faith, and there's evidence that shows that his body is buried in the bowels of the Vatican. These guys really lived. They were real. And so there we have the testimony of two men because he's giving excerpts. Mark is giving excerpts probably from some of Peter's talks about Jesus, and that's what the book of Mark is about. Then you have Luke. Um, Luke was a learned physician and a very intelligent intellectual who worked with Paul, the greatest missionary statesman in history. And he was just, he, he was a really smart guy, and his, his, so, his writings are so historical, we have reason to believe that he actually met with Jesus' mother, Mary, and interviewed her to get some of the information that he received. And finally, we have John, his best friend, who like 40, 50 years later was still leading the church in modern-day Turkey at the time. These guys were really interesting guys, and they were the people that would give their lives for him and would follow him and teach all these things about him. There are, there are so many different writings like this, and you say, well, but where are the scrolls? Do we have the original scrolls? Do you ever ask that question? We don't. But we have the copies, thousands and thousands of copies. In some cases, 4,000 or more copies of passages. And we can compare those passages, and you know what we see? No differences. They're almost identical in what they say. No major difference. We can go back to some of these prophets, 
and we can look at some of their prophecies. That's what the Dead Sea Scrolls are about and all that. You take these prophets and you take prophecies of people that were hundreds of years apart from each other and you put them together and they're accurate. They all say the same thing. This information is just astounding. You could probably fill this room up with the documents that show the accuracy and the historicity of the Bible and the writers of the Bible. This stuff really happened. Beyond that, you know, there's, there's interesting stuff going on. I was reading a guy who's doing a doctorate now where he's talking about how when Christianity has come to countries, that, those countries have really thrived, and it shows how they become, uh, they, they have morality, and they take care of people, and they, they've been, even today, they tend to be healthier countries. Where it hasn't come, we have poverty and disease and heartache, and it's very fascinating, the impact that Christ has had on the world started basically the largest movement that the world has ever known. But let me tell you what I think is most powerful, far more powerful than what I say to you today, is what Rome Dunn said to you earlier today, my buddy, when he shared about what God did in his life. Because that makes it the real deal, right? God is still changing lives. He is still making good out of bad situations. The greatest miracles that happen today is when lives are changed before our eyes. So, with that information, we ask the question, what's the problem? What's the problem? Why doesn't everybody in America come to church? Why doesn't everybody in America believe this stuff? Why doesn't everybody in America get all excited about it and there's no controversy or questions and every you know, teacher is teaching it and everybody's talking about it on television and everybody agrees with all this stuff? Why is there a problem? You ever thought about that? What would the problem be? I think... The problem is that when somebody like Nostradamus or somebody makes their prophecies, they just want you to say, hey, you're the best prophet I've ever heard. But Jesus, when he makes his prophecy, says something very different. His closest friend, John, recorded it this way. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father, comes to God, except through me. I'm the only way. If you want to get to heaven, you can only come through relationship with me. I'm it. You see, it comes with a price tag. It comes with a price tag. It comes with the realization that you can't get there on your own. That nobody can live a good enough life worthy of entrance into heaven. And that the only way you're going to get there is if somebody did it for you. And God did. He died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death once and for all, so that if a person comes into relationship with him, they can know that they can live forever in heaven. But coming into a relationship with him is not just an intellectual ascent, I, I believe. It's falling on your face and surrender before the king of the universe and saying, take me, I'm yours. I did a wedding just recently. And the bride, we were talking about their testimonies and their lives, and she said, I, I knew these things were true, but I held out for a long time. And the reason I held out is because, she said, I, I really felt uncomfortable about the prospect of there being a higher authority. I mean, who wants somebody telling them to do? We have our parents telling us to do when we're little, and then we have our bosses and our teachers. Who wants somebody over us, right? But she came to realize that, that if it's real then she had to do it. It was the only way. And God, ah, he is, a, he is an incredible God. Again, John, in John chapter 10, verse 10, 
um, he tells us that when we come into relationship with God, Jesus, he gives, makes life more full and meaningful. That God makes life, he gives us peace and happiness and joy, and he fulfills our life. It's incredible what he can do and what he wants to do in our lives. It's amazing that John says it because John's whole life, if you read about his life, was a life of suffering. Have you ever met people where they have all this money and success and everything goes well in their life, and yet when you get to really know them up close, they're kind of miserable? They have it all and they don't have it. You ever meet people like that? And then at the same time, have you ever met people where everything, they have a lot of suffering in their lives, but there's still peace and joy that you just can't understand? They struggle, but you can't understand. There's something happening in their life that almost seems supernatural and will be perfect when one day we're in heaven. God wants to offer us that kind of joy that no matter what the circumstances are, you can be at peace and have joy with Him. If you have not yet given your life to Jesus Christ, what better time to do it than Easter Sunday? And I would encourage you um, to surrender your life to Him. And if you'd like to do that, you can come and talk with me or with my buddy Mitch um, or with any of us up here. You can also email me or call me and we'd love to talk to you about that. You know, when I was a boy wanting to be a baseball player. <laughs> Didn't get very far, but I, it was fun thinking about. Um, I had a friend who was a year older than me, and we used to always talk about baseball trivia and exchange baseball cards. He was always ahead of me, so I was always trying to catch up. And so he'd drill, grill me, and he said, who, who hit the farthest home run in history? And I said, Mickey Mantle. And he said, nope. And he named some obscure figure who hit a baseball out of a small baseball stadium, but it landed in the back of a guy's truck. <laughs> And so the truck drove off, and he says, Ron, you missed it that time. This guy hit it the far. I didn't think that was very fair. But imagine if Jesus did want to hit a ball or do anything. Imagine how he would do it. He, he hit the ball light years away. We have this propensity today to, to really get all into superheroes and superhero movies and all that. I think that's because we were made with a natural inclination to worship somebody that's superhero, that's a true superhuman. And Jesus is the superhero. He's the one to worship. Now, I want you to picture it this way. Jesus could hit it anywhere he wants. So let's just say he hits the ball and it goes over the circumference of the planet and then he catches it. And he hits another one and he catches it and he has two balls. And he has them both for you. One ball, he's written on it, salvation. Are you ready today? to talk about giving your life to Christ. In one ball, he's written commitment. Where are you at in your relationship with God? Is it a time to recommit, as Rome talked about earlier? Or is it a time for you to grow still deeper in your relationship with God? Because we all can. And he takes those balls and he tosses them to you, just like, just like your mom or dad did when you were a little kid. Get them close enough. So you think you can catch it there? Yeah, get up close to a guy like that. and you just, So it's easy enough to catch. But they give it to you. You know how you are when you're a little kid? Sometimes you say, No put your hands down and it falls on the ground. What I want to ask you today is to catch it. Are you ready to catch it and deal with those issues in your life? Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for uh, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that you're real, Jesus. Thank you that uh, I know you, that we can each know you, and that you do things in life that, um, that aren't explainable uh, aside uh, from the supernatural. Thank you for the fulfillment of prophecies. Pray that they would move each of us either to come into relationship with you or a deeper relationship with you this day. And we thank you. Just can't thank you enough.
for who you all are and all you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.